Welcome to the Business Influencer Podcast, where we will be interviewing and exploring the success stories of entrepreneurs, business leaders, senior policymakers, and getting insights from thought leaders around the issues of the day. We will be delving into and analyzing the latest news around tech, geopolitics, finance, global business, entrepreneurship, property, leadership, law, philanthropy, and life. This podcast is available on all platforms. But for those of you who prefer to watch, uh, we have the Natural Media YouTube channel. Please subscribe and you can watch all the interviews. Uh, you can also follow the show's updates on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Please do leave a review as it helps to get the word out and about. Uh, my name is Ninda Johal. I am the co-founder of The Natural Group, the Signature Awards and co-publisher of the Business Influencer magazine. And I will be your host for the show. In this episode, we speak to Tim Hibbert about intentional leadership, cultural change, and entrepreneurship. And by this guy's no mug. He's a highly successful entrepreneur with a brilliant book entitled The Intentional Leader. Oh, by the way, he's a really nice guy too. So let's pop over and have a listen to the very impressive Tim Hibbert. It's good evening, Tim uh, Hibbert from the UK. And just to let you know, it's eight o'clock here. And Tim, where and, and Tim, where are you? So I'm in, I'm currently in Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm a. It's about one o'clock here. That's one o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. Oh, okay, perfect. Well, let's, firstly, thank you for taking time out to speak to me. Um, I'm really honored to be here as well. So thank you. Uh, uh, and before I do an introduction, I, I'll just explain to anybody who's watching and, and listening. Uh, I spent the last week reading a fantastic book called The Intentional Leader, written by your good self. How inner authority can unleash strong leadership. And I must admit, when I first picked it up, I thought, I think this is a twist on uh, emotional intelligence by Daniel Coleman. Uh, but actually, as I got into it, and I did a lot of scribbling. It's a very reflective book. It really makes you reflect on yourself, but we'll get into that in detail in a minute. But I was also fascinated, Tim, by your background. So you're a keynote speaker, a writer, you're a CEO and founder of Trillix. It's a business and technology consulting firm. But here's the interesting bit. You were a CEO and president of Atrion. I think I've said that correctly. You grew the company to $170 million mm -hmm. To over 200 employees and you recognize as one of the fastest growing companies for eight years and you know when somebody writes a book and has had a successful career like that i tend to read it i tend to read mm -hmm. it even more attentively because yeah. this is not pure academia this is someone who's been through it and my final comment about your journey before i turn over to you is that extraordinary stat you used you said you were creating $168 million in sales with 10 salespeople. The people who acquired you admittedly had $340 million, but they employed 140 salespeople. Yep. That was extraordinary. So I suppose my first question, Tim, is, so you're a very successful entrepreneur. Why the book? Why decide to write a book? Ninder, that, that's a great question. So let me just back up one second here. Yeah. So 
Uh, I mentioned this a little bit in the book, but um, I suffer from ser some serious dys dyslexia. So, you know, as you can imagine, it affects the way I read, the way I write, the way I speak. You know, it has a big yeah. impact on that. And as I was growing up, I was never diagnosed as having dyslexia. It wasn't until I was in the military and I was about 18 years of age that I found out that I, there was something called dyslexia. And I had it and it was something I had to learn to deal with. So when I was young, I was, I loved, I taught myself how to read at, you know, four to 800 words a minute. And I loved reading. And I had in the back of my mind this idea that I wanted to be an author someday. I wanted to write a book. You know, I wanted to write something, right? And, but I had dyslexia, so it was really hard. I really struggled with it. And as time went on, you know, I kind of became a back burner thing to me because I, I just sit there saying, I, I, I'm struggling with it. Once I knew dyslexia, it became a label that I kind of put on myself. I still wanted to do it. And as technology improved and things like spell checking and grammar checking became a lot easier, word processing was the, processing was easy, uh, easier thing to implement for me, um, I started to become a reality again. So as my leadership journey evolved, I realized that the way I looked at the world and how people should act as leaders was a little bit different than the way a lot of other people look at leadership. A lot of people look at leadership as it's your title on your business card and the, the, the greater the title, the more of a leader you were. And I looked at it from a perspective that even five-year-old kids or younger can be great leaders. And we've seen leadership come from all different corners of the world that I felt that that I had something in that in that um, that world that I could actually add a little different twist to, and make it more human, make it more uh, applied to our life and everything. So, um, about maybe six to seven years ago, I made the decision I was going to write a book. It was going to be on leadership. Um, I was in the process of growing my company and decided to eventually sell it. And it was about three years after I sold it that I finally sat down and said, I got to start putting pen to paper and, and get the book out. And I finally did that. And uh, here we are today. And, and, and I suppose my next question is, so the book itself, did you, did you feel that, I mean, it was published very recently, wasn't it 2020, very recent. Yep. Uh, so just on the cusp of, of COVID. Um, but, but, but did you feel that, the book was really relevant up because where we are with all this disruption going on is that is that what led you to did you feel there was yeah you know i i don't covid is one i had finished the book before covid yeah. Hit, yeah. And i had yeah. it to the publisher so it was mostly editing the book but what i would say the way when i looked at it i felt the time was right for the book in the fact that i do believe that there's a leadership crisis going on in the world you pick yeah. up the paper every day and you see where leadership fails and it fails at all levels from the highest levels of politics, you know, to business, people just in the homes and their family, it fails on a day-to-day -day basis. And my fundamental thesis of this was why it fails is the fact that we lost touch with who we are as individuals. We don't know ourselves well enough. And we let the currents of time and convenience really rule how we lead versus kind of leading from our inside, from what I call the inner authority. And, and that, to me, was the catalyst. I, I felt that we could help the world become better and, and by making people a little bit better, better leaders on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, and that was really, the, you know, what I would say, the driving factor of the book and why now is a good time for it, uh, for it to come out. And then COVID, I think, you know, 
a lot of people struggle with COVID, you know, and there's a lot in the U.S. specifically, it's had a lot of people in, in severe areas of depression, has led to suicide. And I think that we're uncomfortable with ourselves sometimes. And you, with the isolation that COVID created, it really challenges us to, to kind of navigate life in a way that's uh, meaningful. And I think that's hard for some people. And I think it's a relevant book to say, you know, we're all worthy. We just got to get in touch with who we are. Well, well, we'll pick up about COVID a bit later on and how the world has changed in terms of leadership. So, so, so back to the, it's, it's interesting, as I was reading through the book, you talked about the ghost mode. And you gave a, you gave a great example of the, the, the manager who kept walking past the receptionist and, and completely, I wouldn't say blanked her, but you know, didn't really understand what made her tick and was astonished when she left. But, but you talk about that, Weak leadership is the one where we're all in ghost mode. And, and you talk about four things. So take them in any order. You say that could be lack of presence, uh, lack of trust. Uh, and, and we'll talk about unhealthy egos and disconnection. And, and, and I thought when I read that example of, of the guy who completely walks past the receptionist, forgets to ask her how she is, is that in today's intense intensity, the, the rate that we will move, and we're so task orientated that really what we were doing was exactly what the book said, which is we forget about the world around us. And, mm. and, and those were the symptoms you said. Yeah. So, 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 so go through a couple of them. I mean, the lack of presence, pick the lack of trust. Let's pick up the lack of trust. Explain what you meant by that. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I start that chapter of the book and I, and I share a story. In the book, I share a story about when I was in high school. Yep. Um, I had to read aloud to the class a, an excerpt from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's Self-Reliance. And the quote goes something like this. It says, uh, it says trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to its own iron string. And when I read this aloud, and I had a challenge with reading aloud in class because of my dyslexia and not being able to, you know, pronounce words all the time correctly. So as I read this, um, I got struck by the power of those words, and I read it again and again and again. I got in this loop where I read it probably six, seven, eight times before the teacher asked me to leave the uh, leave the classroom because she thought I was being a joker. But what happened was when I started reading those words, what I realized to myself is I was in such a strange state as a young man then, I realized I didn't trust myself. And I realized as reading that, and as I started reflecting upon that quote, that if I couldn't trust myself, what could I trust then? Could I trust in, could I trust in my fellow you know, colleagues and peers? Could I trust in the school? Could I trust in anything? And the answer kept coming back, I couldn't. And so as I started developing from that point on as a, as a better leader, what I realized is for me to be able to extend trust into the world, I have to be very, I have to be able to trust myself. And I, I came from a very dysfunctional family. So um, I, I didn't trust those outside of, outside of my, outside myself at all because of that environment. I figured people were out there to hurt me. And I had to go through some really hard reflections in my life to say, listen, if I want to be a good leader and I want people to trust me, I got to learn to trust them. And so my, the fundamental philosophy I came up with in the trust is that for me to be trusted, I have to be willing to trust, even though there's no evidence that I should trust, right? And it's a, it's a hard thing to kind of get people to do. So for me, that was a real re revelation. It took me to about the age of 30 to figure it out. 
and to where I could actually have better relationships with my peers and colleagues, better interpersonal relationships with family and friends. Um, but I became, I, I, you know, rewired myself to be a lot more trusting and open and, but I, I was solid too. I knew what I was about. I knew who I was. I trusted who I was. I knew no matter what at that age, I knew no matter what I was faced with, I trust that I would make the best decision based upon that. And I may make mistakes and I may fail in doing things, but the decision I made was something I trusted I made for the right reasons. And that made it a lot easier for me because I could face then challenges and put myself in uncomfortable positions. So I knew I trust my ability to get through that. Then what I've also believed with that trust is that if I trust in my team members and I can extend my trust to them, that they will find the courage sometimes to go to those uncomfortable areas, to take on more responsibility, to be more accountable, to be more empowered in the organization. If I'm not extending that trust, they're not willing to take that risk with us. And they're not going to give you any of that discretionary effort or um, ambition that they may have. You know, so it was a big, for me, it was a big eye opening. It was all comes down to that quote by Emerson that really changed, you know, changed my trajectory. So, so let me just pick that up. So are we saying then weak leaders are the ones that have a, a distrust? In other words, don't trust the team that they work with because their premises is a people report to me, I have to micromanage them because actually I don't trust them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's like, it's like anything in life to, if I want to empower my team or anyone in my, my children, you know, my, my, you know, a partner in my life, um, I got to trust them and I got to trust that they do the right thing. So the way I develop that is I, I give them frameworks to make better decisions. So think of a, 12, 13 year old kids, how many times do we tell them that you can't do something? And our reason is that it's not good for you. And, and we're basically saying, I don't trust you to make good decisions. What if I sat down and I taught them how to make better decisions, gave them a framework of values that they can make their decisions against and give them the ability to make better decisions. I don't have to tell them, no, they're gonna make better decisions on their own. They're gonna be more empowered to take on the world instead of rebelling against what we're telling them to do, that micromanagement, that, you know, that very prescriptive way of kind of engaging them. So for me, it's really about extending that trust, giving them framework to do what they need to do and people will rise to the occasion. And if I'm unable as a leader to do that, it's usually because I don't trust myself. I don't so that's trust- your, Yeah, yeah. So that's your premise, isn't it? That yeah. if you don't trust yourself, you then don't trust anyone else. That's right. And I'm not going to empower them. I'll micromanage them. I'll be very prescriptive. Um, sometimes I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be very, um, very critical of what they do and don't do, you know, and, 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 and drive it from that perspective. Instead of building people up, we have a tendency of bringing them down when we don't have that level of trust. So, so let me just probe into that a bit more then. So let's just go a step back. So how do you then, in order to trust other people, how do you increase the trust in yourself? So, so what can you do to make yourself someone that can then trust others? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll simplify. It's a little bit more complicated in this yeah. for this conversation. I think there's, I think there's really two things that you have to really do to be able to learn to trust yourself. And you know, a lot of this came from my own personal journey and reflection and, you know, my successes and failures and, you know, and my, when I stumbled, you know, at times. But I think it starts with self-awareness, right? 
being able to create the space in your life where you can really be reflective on who you are as a person, where you are, where you want to be. Um, I talk about this in the book quite a bit. We don't take uh, time to really understand who we are. We, yeah. we don't have time. And it's understandable. We go a thousand miles an hour. We have a million responsibilities we have to get done on a day-to-day basis. And the world's not getting easier. So there's less and less time to do that. So you have to intentionally take the time to carve out space to be more self-reflective. So for me, it's part of my practice. Every day I spend time in the morning for that first half hour or so of my day, just to sit back and look at where I'm at. What am I doing? Am I being honest with myself? Am I living up to my core values? Am I doing that? So this self-awareness is the first step. The second step, I, I believe, it's really that I have to have a framework in which I exist. And I refer to this in the book. I talk about this is our personal ideology. It's the ideology that exists. And for me, it has three primary things that are out there and it drives everything. It's the vision of who I am and who I want to be. It's my purpose. Why do I do what I do and what are my core values? And so for me, those three things form my ideology. And this is the belief I have in myself. And so for me, I would say I always had a strong vision of who I was going to who I was and where I was going to go in life and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to manifest myself into the world. Um, I didn't really understand kind of my why for a while. And then when I was in, you know, probably my early 40s, maybe I kind of figured it out. And but I understood in my early 30s kind of what my core values were. I became very, very, you know, very obsessed with understanding core values. So, so those three things come together and they help you form a decision. So for me, my number one core value is integrity. And so when I'm facing a decision, I kind of look at that decision and say, how do I act with integrity as I'm making this decision? If I'm going to work with you and you're going to be a colleague of mine or a coworker or a subordinate, you know, what's the right way to work with you to get the best out of you, the best for the organization, best for the, you know, the people around us. And so everything starts from that perspective. Because I have a strong sense of, of those things, I know what motivates me you know, and what drives me as an individual. Um, so I'm not going to be driven by things that aren't true in, in, in essence to myself. So in my life, money and that utilitarian side of things don't mean any, doesn't mean much to me. So I wouldn't take a bribe. I wouldn't do something just for the sake of the dollar, right? There's a, another purpose for, for, for me to do what I'm doing. So I know those things and it makes it easy. And I also understand what my intentions are. So when I'm working with you, what are the true intentions of me having a conversation with you and what I'm trying to accomplish? A lot of us, we don't know what our intentions are. We're not intentional about them. I'd rather have a conversation with you and say, you know, Ninder, this is what, I, these are my intentions and lay them out there so it's clear and black and white. And now we're building a foundation where we're, you know, building a level of trust. And hopefully what happens if I put that out there, will the other person then share what their intentions are? And will they be honest in sharing those intentions? And I trust that they will. And we move from that perspective. But for me, it's about understanding self-awareness, looking at yourself, and then, you know, being, you know, developing that inner authority. Interesting. In the book, you talked about, uh, and, and this was interesting. So normally you hear commentators saying managers and leaders need to be outward looking. And you said, well, no, 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 hold on. They need to be first inward looking before they can appreciate outward looking. And that, when I read that, whoa, hold on, everything, everybody else. So perhaps you can explain how inward looking is important before you look outward. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we, we lose sight of that, right? We're, we're, such a, we're, we're in such a mode where we're just running and we're looking forward. We don't take time to tie our shoelaces sometimes. We don't put yeah. on the gear. And what happens, we run so fast, we end up hurting ourselves in positions where we, where we don't want to be. So for me, it really, um, it really became a point of, of time to say, listen, if I want to be successful in this world, the more I understand who I am, the more I can, can be honest with myself, you know, and, and we're all fallible, right? We're all humanly fallible. We, we, we do things that we don't like about ourselves. And, and sometimes we try to, you know, try to make, make it sound like it's all right. We make excuses or justify it. When you're really being self-aware, you don't let those excuses, those justifications, that judgment come into play. We spend too much time judging ourselves for the wrong things. Right. So for me, it's about turning the, the lens inward. If I can do that and look at myself and then I know what, what I'm about, I can then ex I can extend that out to someone else, to other people. Right. And it's the same way I look at when we're dealing with um, organizations, when we're building companies. Right. I can look at one of two ways. I can start from the inside, what my idea is, what my product is and extend it outward. Or I could actually sit back from the client perspective and say, okay, what does the client really want? And how do I give them what they want? So when I do the, when I do a, you know, work with businesses, it's about the opposite. I want to start from their perspective and work into our business. So it's a starting point, that reference point, that's really, really important. Because, because you make a reference, and it's a great one in the book about looking out of the window and looking in the mirror. And, mm. and, and, you, and you said, and perhaps you could explain how, how that sort of fits in with what you've just said, really, is mm. when you look out the window and, and, and instead of looking in, in the mirror, so perhaps you could explain that, how that sort of fits in with what you just said. Yeah, so in, in 2001, um, I read a business book, and the book was uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. And for That's me, right. it's transformational reads that you read, and it, for whatever reason, it, it, just, it just resonated with me. And what he talks about in that book and what I referenced in, in my book is that he talks about this concept of what he called level five leaders. So in his research, he determined that the, 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 these 11 companies that he came up with that he classified as great, their leaders were different than the typical leaders he was looking in the comparison companies. They weren't the extroverted, perfect speech, you know, perfect image kind of individuals, people that are great on camera, but they were just everyday people. And one of the things he talks about in this book, that way they behaved when things were good and way things were, when things were bad was just different with this level five leadership. And I think this is a very strong metaphor. When things weren't going well, level five leaders would go to a mirror and actually look in the mirror and say, what have I done wrong? What could I be doing better? They, they looked at themselves as the, as the source of why they weren't being successful. And if we think about this, companies that aren't successful, teams that aren't successful, family that lack success, it starts with the leaders of that, those organizations. You know, I, I may have bad team members on my team, but it's the leaders that really drive the success of the organization. So they look at it and say, what could I have done better? How could I have handled that situation? What could I do? So it's a very self-reflective environment. And when things are going well, what they do is they go to this, the window and they look out the window and they see the team that's out there with them. And they're saying, we wouldn't be where we're at if it wasn't for Nindar doing this. And it wouldn't be this if Michelle wasn't doing that. And they really take that credit and they give it to the people that really made it happen on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And then he contrasts that with people that are, you know, great leaders and good leaders as far as creating results and outcomes. And he found that their performance was just the opposite. Their behaviors were opposite of that. What they did is when credit was, you know, earned, <laughs> to credit themselves, they went to the mirror and said, yeah. who's the greatest yeah. of them all? And the, the mirror said, of course you are, right? And then they, you know, went to the window when things wasn't, weren't going well, and they're looking out there, seeing who they could find to blame for the problem. You know, this company would be great if it just wasn't for Tim. Again, it's kind of the mindset and they blame Tim and then they move over here and blame Bill and they go through that whole process. So the idea behind it and the way the philosophy, you know, I think why it resonated with me is because that's how I looked at the world. It, it started, it all starts with me. If I'm willing to be honest, I'm willing to look at myself in, in a way that says that I could be the problem. I can then fix that problem and I can then take that problem forward and become an opportunity and I can turn my company into what it needs to be. Um, too many people in leadership roles, you know, they 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 get stuck on the success of the of the lies that they tell themselves that they're great because their company happened to be good. Some companies have awful leadership and they're good because they're the right product, right time, and had nothing to do with their leadership skills, just timing is it or luck or whatever. And then what happens when they try to replicate that, they can't replicate it. Or it's interesting. It's interesting. It is about language as well. So in, in here, you, in America, you call it soccer, and here we call it uh, premiership football. And it's interesting, when a team loses or wins, and they interview the manager, and it's the, it's the words they use, and, and, and if the team has lost badly, the manager normally blames the team and said, oh, they did do this, they didn't do that. Uh, but the good managers are the ones who say, well, it's my fault, it's the way I set exactly. the team up. So I set the team up. My instructions obviously weren't clear. I haven't done something right in training, which meant that. And you can spot the language a mile away. And, and that's what fascinated me when I read the example mm. of Jim Collins and Good to be Great. And I thought it was a fantastic the way you wrote that. And of course, yeah. it picks up from the ability to look inwards mm -hmm. first to understand how you sit. Um, and so just picking that up, you, you then make a, a clear distinction between transactional leadership and transformational leadership so perhaps again you could explain to the people listening in and watching yeah. how, how do you how do you differentiate that so the way the way i look at it and you know the, the point i make in the book and the, when i teach and talk about leadership i try to make across is that today we became we, we become a very transactional society you know i want something i go online i purchase it right so i get something but I have to give something in return. So it's this you know, quid pro quo kind of exchange that occurs. I talk to you and I'm nice to you because I want something from you. And if I don't get it necessarily, then I'm not happy. And then my approach may not be as, as smooth going forward. So, so for me, I, I believe that works at times. I can get what I want. It can be manipulative at times. We can you know, manipulate people to do what we want them to do. But that type of relationship doesn't last long. People see through that you're just using them, that, um, yeah, you may appreciate, you may say the right things. And so the term I use when I talk about, this is the short game, right? This is a short part of the game. It's, you know, gives you, you know, a win for 30 days, 90 days, 30 seconds sometimes, whatever that time frame happens to be. And I believe as leaders, we have to play the long game. We're, we're in this for the long haul. When I work with a client, I'm not thinking about getting the deal that's on the table today. I'm thinking about, What's this client relationship going to look like 10, 15, 20 years from now? 
So it's a long-term. And in that point in time, I'm willing to invest. I'm willing to invest more than what it would cost to actually get the transaction to occur. So what I find for myself is that I'm willing to give without any expectation of anything in return. And it could be helping somebody else, you know, helping someone. And it may take me five hours or 10 hours to, to help them. And I get nothing in return. But at some point in time down the road, 10, 15 years from now, it may come back in a way that helps me. And if not, the fact that I helped you help somebody else down the road, who then may in turn help me. It's a, and, and I believe that return in a long, in a long game is, is 100 times what you get in the short game. Um, so it's, it's just changing your perspective. Am I, look, am I trying to close a deal or am I trying to get a lifelong client? Like it's, in, it's interesting. I heard you speak elsewhere in which you said in the 22 businesses that you were involved in, you couldn't remember an instance when that didn't actually happen. That Somewhere along the line, it came back to benefit you, which I thought was an extraordinary comment that whatever you've helped people in those 22 businesses, Mm-hmm. They invariably came back. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I'll use this on a more personal tone. So um, in 2021, I lost my wife. She passed away in April. And you know what was amazing to me is that, you know, this is the darkest moment of your life that you face with yeah. something that happens, losing someone that's close to you. The out, outpouring of love and friendship from people I haven't talked to in 10 to 15 years was just unbelievable. And every one of them, it wasn't just to say, Tim, I'm sorry. There was some, Tim, I remember when you did X, Y, Z for me. I've never had a chance to thank you for it. You know, I hope that you get through this. And if there's anything I can do to help you. It just, it makes you realize that, you know, when you, what you put out in the world is being picked up. And it's good or bad. If I put out bad, the badness is being picked up. If I'm putting out good, people reflect upon that. And so I've seen it both in the business world and I've seen it on a personal level, close up, especially in this last year. And it's, um, you, you, can't, you, you can't measure that, right? I can't put that on my balance sheet at the end of the day. It's not, you know, it's not on my P&L, right? It's just something that happens that, that uh, you got to be patient for, and it does come back. And I do believe the universe does, you know, work in that mysterious ways. And that's one of the ways. You put goodness out, goodness comes back. So, so it's almost a perspective in life. So if you have a, an abundance mindset, in other words, you think positive, you trust everyone because you trust yourself, you have integrity, so therefore you assume everyone else has integrity, then it just makes life a lot much easier and a lot easier to lead because your whole abundant mindset is going in the... Because actually you believe, and I agree with you, by the way, that generally speaking, people are good people you're going to get the exception, but generally speaking, people are good people. And I heard you say somewhere in the book, um, if things aren't right, there's a reason behind it. And, and you've got to probe into what that reason is. Mm-hmm. If things aren't working properly, there's always a reason. People deliberately don't go out to make you miserable. There's something that's making them miserable. So that's absolutely true. I, I, I firmly believe that. And, I, and I'll go back to the word you said about abundance, right? We live in a world of abundance. If you think about what this world has to offer all of us, and I know, I know it depends on where you live in the world, how that yeah. abundance is, but I've been, I've been in the back countries, countries like Peru, where I've seen people that live in mud sheds, you know, shacks, and they, they have nothing. Yet in their world, they, they're full of abundance, right? Yeah. So 
up to stuff that we count as TVs and cars and houses and stuff like that abundance. But we live in a world of immense and, and, and infinite abundance. What we lack, the scarcity is the will, right? We lack, it's the scarcity of will that we have to understand that we live in a world of abundance. Look at things as problems and issues and, you know, threats, instead of looking at it as an opportunity, right? And so when you switch that mindset there, you, you look at the world as an opportunity full of abundance. It, it's just a different world, right? So, so, so picking that up, just picking something you it was quite extraordinary in the book as well. I, I really did enjoy your book. Was if you take that one step further now, you talk about ego in there. And 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 what was interesting was we all when we say ego, we all think arrogance, overconfident. Mm -hmm. Actually, you flipped it the other way. You said, Well, actually, you can your ego can be too low, and if it's too low, you're gonna probably end up being negative and the whole your whole approach. So you actually picked up the reverse bit and said, well, hold on, hold on. Yes, yeah, ego, the wrong ego could be wrong. But actually, ego that is too weak can also be wrong. And, 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 and what you need to do, so how do you decide, <laughs> difficult question, that your ego is too low or too high? How do you know where to position your ego? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. So I, the, the, the one thing I looked at when I was writing this book, I, you know, I wanted to try, ego is a hard thing to talk about unless you're a psychologist yeah. and you've yeah, studied yeah. it for years. First of all, when we use the word ego, no one ever really thinks that ego is a positive thing. Yeah, that's right. Without ego, we don't exist, right? It's the part yeah. that self-identity. The problem with our ego, if we're not careful, it lies to us. It tells us that we're great or it tells us that we're not great. Right. And depending on why it's trying to do that. So, so what happens is we have a tendency of looking at the extreme, the person that's a narcissist, arrogant, you know, kind of super ego kind of, you know, driven type of person or the person that lacks confidence, self-esteem kind of doubts themselves, don't trust, they don't trust themselves. So I, I would say that, you know, kind of the way I look at it for myself, this is part of where the self-awareness and reflection comes in. And I got to get past where I'm judging myself because that's where the ego comes in is it gets to a point where I'm trying to justify why I do. And I'm trying to, you know, basically because I'm judging myself and I don't want to be threatened by the fact that I'm doing something not right. So we, we have a tendency of making up stories of why we, why we're, we did something that we shouldn't have done and we can justify anything. And you see it on TV all the time. People justify why they do something. And really is getting past that and say, okay, what, what happened? Is this something that happened that is in line with my core values? It's a pretty objective statement. If I act in, and if I, you know, if I did something that was not ethical, it doesn't align with my integrity. I made a mistake. It's that simple. Can I correct that mistake? Can I move forward? So it, once again, it's about being, being, being able to be self-aware, look at yourself, look at it without justifying, without making excuses, without judgment, you know, did I live by my core values? Did I, in my, in, were my intent, my intentions pure, right? Was it just a communication mistake? Was it a moment of weakness that I, I did something I shouldn't have done? So I think that's step one. And then step two for me, I use the analogy in the book, I talk about ego being a, it's kind of like a, a, a knob on a stereo, the volume knob on a stereo, right? If it's too high, the sound gets distorted. If it's too low, we can't hear it. You got to find that perfect balance. And it's not that that number's, you know, the middle point for every person. It may be different for some people, right? They may be up or down a little bit. 
in the way I kind of you know explain this many times is think about the situation or circumstances I'm in. If I'm listening to heavy metal, it sounds good on 11, right? And if I'm listening to classical music, it probably sounds better on four or five, right? So situations require that ego to be dialed up and down. So there's no one right level that yeah. you're bad. It constantly changes throughout life. And be able to understand that our job is to put guardrails around it, recognizing when I'm not being humble, recognizing when I'm being yeah. arrogant, recognizing when you know I don't take the time to respect others around me and I don't their opinions don't matter. And those are those are behaviors, and we can change those behaviors in a heartbeat if we if we are able to recognize it. In, in, interesting. Also, um, again, talking about egos and confidence and not having confidence, too much confidence. This is great case study towards the end. Um, when we talk about empowering others, when one of your managers says, I want a resource for two extra people. Uh, and, 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 and you said, well, well hold on. Uh, that's why I picked up your stat about 10 salespeople doing amazing things. Yeah. Um, and of course, you then said, well, go back and relook at the people that work for you and go and find another leader. It was a leadership problem. That's what you were saying in the way they were being led. So, so here's my question is you found someone who you persuaded to become a leader who then turned the whole team around. So this is one step down. But how do you empower others? And we're talking back to ego again, who perhaps don't have the ego to take something like that on. And, yeah. get them to, and get them to achieve because I think you made a brilliant point throughout your whole book is that leadership is not about being directive, but it's about being a great coach and empowering other people mm. to perform. And that ran right throughout the book, which I thought was fantastic. So how do you do it? How do you empower somebody who actually doesn't want to do it? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because I would, I would argue that Grace, the person in the story I share the story about, in, in her in her world, she didn't look at herself as, as a leader. Yeah. She looked at it in the classical, I'm not a CEO of the company, yeah. you know, I have a business card. She didn't even have a business card at the time. You know, so she didn't have any of those things that would say I'm a leader, and she didn't view herself as a leader. And I would say that her ego was probably a little low when this whole yeah. problem out. She didn't That's have right. the confidence and didn't trust herself. So for me, what it, it, there were two things that I did that started this off when we approached her. One was I had to give her the confidence that I trusted her. And so I extended my trust to her to give her the belief that if Tim's going to trust me, then maybe I'm not seeing something in myself that I should be seeing. And that gave her enough confidence to lean in a little bit. And that's all you need to do is to get someone to lean in just a little bit. Once they start to leaning, you know, then you can, you can help them move to where they need to go. It's kind of like judo or aikido, those forms where it doesn't take much for you to move someone if they if you get their momentum, you get them, you know, leaning into something. So with her, that was the first thing that I did. It was kind of extending that trust to do that. The second thing that that happened with this is I I, I asking her to take on leadership of the entire group was a big thing to her at that point in time in her career. She never saw herself in that level. It was almost overwhelming. So one of the things I did is I tried to break down this into very simple things for her to begin with and just to do small things where she could get success with them. Right. You know, and, you know, and I did some small things with that allowed her to sit down with the team and have a conversation and 
get the team to respond in a positive way. And we saw that I could say, see, this is a perfect example, you know, leader, right? You did this great, you know, and I, I kind of built that confidence based on small wins with her. And it didn't take that long. We probably spent, you know, the better part of three weeks setting up small wins for her to get her to where she was getting her feet underneath her. Um, and once she did that, she was able to do things on her own. She'd come to me and say, Tim, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And I would say, why don't we, it sounds good to me. Why don't we try it? Let's see what happens. Or, you know, maybe you want to modify it a little bit. I love the idea. Maybe do this a little bit differently, this one aspect and coach her a little bit on that. And then she would go do it, come back and she'd be excited because 99% of the time her idea was very good. It was spot on and she got yeah. some level of success out of it. And so the point in time within about a month, she really just owned, owned the role. Um, and she's, you know, she, she did well. She struggled a little bit in the early times. She, you know, she get in front of the group a couple of times and she lost confidence and it didn't go well. And we talked through it, but every step of the way, it was, it was basically giving her the power to do that and giving her the ability to understand it doesn't have to be perfect. We're not, we're not in the game of perfection. It's the game of progress we're in. Can we make a little bit of progress every time? And as we do that, we get nearer and nearer to perfection. And that is kind of the, the, the challenge I think a lot of people have when they're taking on larger leadership roles. They think they have to be perfect. They're, they're infallible and they can't make mistakes. And if I make a mistake, I'll never recover from it. And that's so far from the truth. Life is about making mistakes. It's about being messy a little bit. And if life's like that, then leadership is about that as well. So, so a couple of final questions. Um, so COVID came along. Your book was already published. People now working from home. I know there's a slight switch now, but we do know that people in the long term will probably have hybrid from some from home. You mentioned very much earlier on around the mental health thing with people were isolated and the uncertainty was racking them. Do you think if you wrote the book today, I know it's only two years old, would anything change or would you say your principles still remain the same, even though people are working from home? So I, I, I don't know if I would change the book much. I think, I think some of the principles we talk about are relevant regardless of it's good times or bad times, whether it's COVID or, you know, war in Ukraine or whatever that's going along. Yeah. I think, I think what you see is when we are facing these crisis moments that, um, this is when our, our teams need leadership the most. Yeah. With COVID, the, the challenge is it's easy because the, the distance that gets created because of working from home and the isolation that gets created to not be a leader, right? You, you're not present. You don't see what's going on. I can't just walk by someone's desk. It's, you know, it's a process to kind of get to that next level. So for me, it's about, I think the fundamental being a leader stays the same. What I also think about it, I have to be present more as a leader and I have to uh, take on the actions of being a leader a lot. More. That's right. Then when I put it in business context, I would probably write an addendum or a second book that would talk about, it's really about going back and focusing on things like vision. Where are we going? Where's the organization going? Where's your job and your career going within the organization? I need to connect the team because they're so disconnected from from the day to day, I'm not sitting at a desk. I can't have the water cooler conversations. 
you know, I don't have the boss that's either walking by my desk and ignore me like George does in the book yeah. or stopping by saying just how are you doing today. So I would, I would build, I, I put more focus on building that vision and getting people to see how the vision of their life and their trajectory can align with this. The second is why we're doing what we do, you know, in the job. I think we need that more. Um, many, many of the companies that, you know, have gone through COVID and survived COVID, they saved thousands and hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? If those companies failed, there would have been, you know, unemployment would have been worse during that time period. Yeah. Wouldn't have gotten back. We'd still be reeling from the economic crisis. But it's the fact that we have a purpose here, right? It's to survive. And if we don't survive, it's not just you. It's Mary, and Mary has a kid that's, you know, suffering with autism, and Jeff's wife is in the hospital for XYZ. Those are the people that really suffer. So being able to bring that purpose into what we're doing is really an important aspect of it. When you're at home by yourself working on your computer, it's easy to lose sight of those things. And now it's just a job. You know, it's just another email I'm responding to. It's another call I'm taking. And we got to get beyond that. I thought, um, having read your book, I thought it was even more powerful in the context of COVID because actually it's forcing people to think about their management style, about how you think about things. Because I think when you're rushing around, you see them all the time and perhaps you never think of them. But I think because the fact they're no longer in the room, you're having to probably think more than you would. I thought, I thought it was fantastic. Now, let's finish on some practical stuff. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, we talked about self-awareness, trust, ego, all the kind of stuff. So some practical ideas on how people can become intentional leaders. Just give us some, some sort of practical uh, tips on how they become better intentional leaders. So not repeating anything I talked about, you know, yeah. the call. What, what I would say, I, I think that one of the, the things I would have people look at is to think about this as, as individuals and as leaders, we're defined by the choices that we make. And sometimes we look at choices and we think about choices in big things. Am I going to buy a new house? Am I going to invest in this business? Am I going to talk to Mary because she's not performing as well as she needs to be? Those are the big things that we think about. What I want you to think about it from an intentional leadership is that we have a choice to make every second, every second, every moment we have the choice to do something. We can choose to be a leader or we can choose not to be a leader. And the more I can make more of those moments I can bring together where I choose to be a leader, the more powerful we become as leaders and the more impact that we have as leaders. A good example of this is just think about going to a supermarket, shopping in a supermarket. I wouldn't say that's a leadership moment and that's not a big decision right I'm not making anything I'm going there to pick up groceries it's something that's in the back of our mind. But can I walk into that store and can I greet people and say hi as I'm walking through the store? I absolutely can do that. That's a choice I make. By doing that, I'm connecting with my fellow peers that are in the, in the, in the store shopping. I, have a, I can have a positive impact on their day. What if I'm talking to someone that's truly depressed and I just come in and I have this positive attitude and I recognize that they're there and validate that they're worthwhile? One second choice. I can make a difference in that person's life for the rest of that day or for the rest of that hour or the rest of that, sh- that trip there. So thinking about the choices that we make every second, George, who walked by Anna every day and never said hi to her, he could have made an intentional choice to walk in and just say hi to Anna and spend 
30 seconds talking to her, asking her a couple of questions, moving on. It's a choice he made. He made a choice not to do that. Even when it was brought to his attention, attention, he still made the choice not to take the time. And so he chose not to be a leader, to sit down. So I think making those choices and, and, and their small choices every single day is really, 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 really critical. The third, the second thing I would say for me to be more practical, it's it's about leadership is about leading people. It's not about process. It's not about balance sheets and income statements. It's, it's not about technology. It's about people at the end of the day. And it's taking time for the people that you lead and to really get to know them and to connect with them and realize that you're, you're, you're in it for them. The reason why you're a leader and the reason why you exist as a leader is for them. And I think parenting is a great example of leadership because when you have children, it's less about your life anymore. It's about their life yeah. to do and sacrifice for them. And I think leadership is the exact same way. We have to realize we only exist as leaders for the people that, that are going to be around us. They're going to follow us and they're going to listen to us. So that connection is really a big part of what, what you want to do. So Tim, just to pick that up, isn't it interesting, the examples you give, and yet some leaders act totally differently at work and act totally different outside of work and people don't recognize the same individuals because their behavior is so different yet what you're saying is you should have intentional leadership wherever you are whoever you're with whatever their status is because if you can do that it becomes part of your sort of behavior pattern but it's surely i've heard people say my gosh, I met Mr. X or Mrs. X or Miss X at this social event and they were totally different. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then that's, that comes back to, uh, you don't trust yourself. You, so you feel you have to put on a mask, you have to project yourself in a certain way to be liked or to be approved upon, you know, uh, uh, to, to achieve approval. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, I am who I am, right? I was made this way for a reason. I was given the ability to, to constantly work on improving myself, right? And if I'm, if I'm comfortable with that, I can constantly make those adjustments and I, I want the world to see who I am. And I, I'm not, I always haven't been that way. I mean, I was very guarded at a young age because of some of the things I went through and I felt I had to put on certain errors. And it really, I realized I didn't like being two different people. And I didn't like either one of the people I was becoming, right? I didn't like the, the personal quiet side of myself and I didn't like the external side of myself. And that's not a good, good place for anyone to be. And I had to learn to say, hey, you know what? I don't really care what other people think about me. I'm just going to be myself. And if they like me, great. You know, yeah. hopefully I do the right things and I say the right things and I do, uh, I'm going to try to be a good person and people recognize that. And I'm much happier. You know, I'm one person now. Wherever you see me, I'm the, the same person. And, um, and hopefully, you know, and hopefully I'll continue to be that way, you know. Uh, just before we finish, I'm just going to quickly remind you of some of the pearls you've dropped today. Um, we've talked about, uh, it's fantastic, your business experience. And by the way, the book is worth reading for two others. And I'm not going to go into detail. Your experience in martial arts and how... A middle-aged woman sorted you out and what you learned from that. I, th I, I, I thought the example you gave earlier of the supermarket, asking the lady on the other side of the supermarket how she felt, and you didn't yeah. have to, but how her whole demeanor changed was extraordinary. 
Um, you've talked about um, ghost mode, you know, going through life without understanding what's around you. You've talked about lack of presence, lack of trust, the role of ego and disconnection, inward looking, outward looking, the Jim Collins uh, example of looking in the mirror and looking outside. We spoke about the difference between transactional and transformational. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about empowering others, even those who don't want to be empowered, because actually everybody's capable of leadership from the way you've described it. Mm -hmm. We've gone through some of the practical examples of how you can improve your self-awareness and, and make a better intentional uh, mm -hmm. leader. We've talked about the fact that the book is about as relevant pre and post COVID because in fact, I think you need intentional leadership even more. It's, you know, it's even more essential. Um, and, and I think you get some great examples of how you can improve. And, and I love this one, chapter four, page 75. I love the, the quote from Emerson. Do not go where the path may lead. Instead, go where there is no path and leave a trail. And, and I think the book certainly lends to that. It gets you to think differently. It's no longer about the people out there, but actually start with yourself first. And you know something, uh, Tim, I think people go through life without ever looking at themselves. And always it's someone else's fault or some other circumstance. So I think, uh, Tim, I think it's a fantastic book. Thank and, you. And, if any, and if anybody wants to get hold of you, I'm, I've got so many scribbles, I can't give it to anyone else now. But if somebody <laughs> wants to contact wants to contact you, how can they get hold of you? Probably the best the best thing to probably do is to reach out to me one of two ways. You can go to my website. I have timhebert.com. You go to the website there. There's a contact me page, and they can send me a message through the website, or they can reach me through info at timhebert.com. Uh, this was a brilliant read, and I'll tell you one thing. I'm in the queue waiting for your next book. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate, I really appreciate the compliment, and uh, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed having the conversation today. Brilliant stuff, Tim. Thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Have, have, have a great day. You've still, got, you've still got quite a bit of a day to go yet. Hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and if so, please do leave a review. It all helps in promoting the podcast. Oh, and by the way, have a great day.